So we had we had two iterations of a beta, uh, beta one and beta two that we call them because we're very clever at naming things. And the first beta that we released, we kind of made some rough assumptions on how people wanted to send us data. You were able to send us a couple of pieces of data and get like real time results. The challenge there was it was really good. To, it was really good to demo. Like, hey, like I could show you real time. Like I could take this JSON blob, you could set it to our API, and you got results back right away. People were like, this is great, like, I'm in. And they're like, now I have a five gigabyte file. How do we process that? My name is John Myers. I'm a co-founder and CTO at Gretel AI. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how John Myers built a software machine to anonymize info and created privacy engineering for all. All this and more on Code Story. John Myers comes from a big military family. He was convinced he was going to be a pilot his whole life. And when he was a junior in high school, he started doing C++ programming, and he got hooked. After graduation, he got accepted to RPI in upstate New York and started studying computer science. He eventually joined the Air Force and focused on information systems. Through an interesting turn of events, John got accepted to the NSA, while a good friend of his took his deployment spot to Iraq. This job launched him into the world of cybersecurity, which took him to Afghanistan doing engineering for the military. When he came back to the States, he jumped headfirst into the startup world. He's into exercise, likes to bike in the summer and ski in the winter. Mostly, he likes to decompress with his friends and family. Post-acquisition of his first startup, John started working on a bunch of projects, one of them requiring him to aggregate a large amount of data and anonymize it. This took a lot of work, and there wasn't anything out on the market that provided this type of functionality, which got John's attention. This is the creation story of Gretel. Gretel is a privacy toolkit that allows developers, engineers, and scientists to quickly create safe versions of data so they can be more productive with their teams and within their organizations. When I came back from Afghanistan, stayed around in Maryland for another year or so. Went to Las Vegas, did some regular Air Force stuff in, in Las Vegas, uh, working with LifeFly exercises. You know, I kind of had this, this decision to make, like I was going to either have to switch over into the upper management ranks of the Air Force or get out. So I decided to get out. I still stayed in the reserves and I launched a startup in cybersecurity with a couple of other veterans. I uh, did that for a couple of years, got off the ground, then we got acquired by a a company that does performance network monitoring. And while I was there, I started working on a lot of different projects as an architect. And one of the projects I was working on was uh, creating this analysis product that used anonymized customer data to kind of show general threat landscapes in the internet. What we needed to do was take a bunch of this feedback that we get from products that were sold to customers, anonymize the data, and then make it queryable. And that was all pretty straightforward, except for the anonymization side of things. 
I was very familiar with the data because it was all like network telemetry. It's, it's stuff I've always lived inside, right? DNS information and TCP IP data. And I was like, oh, we gotta figure out how to anonymize this, which turned out to be probably more work than building the end-to-end product. I was like, well, that was a lot of work. Like there was really nothing out there that was really de- of a developer-friendly way to do that. Like all the tools that are out there are kind of like really high level APIs or enterprise applications that you install and like, you know, they crawl your data stores and they help you identify where sensitive information is. But like I needed to put something in the path of this like data pipeline that we were building that could process records at a time. And at the same time, you know, with my current co-founders, Alec Watson and Alec Olshin, we were, you know, always just catching up and talking. I forget what we were talking about. We're talking about like Alexas and stuff like that. Uh, there's some, you know, one of like the 800 news articles about how your uh, Alexas are spying on you and stuff like that, or capturing too much information. How are they using all the audio that they collect? I was joking with our CEO now, Ali, and one of my really good friends, and I was like, you know what I'm going to do? Like, I'm just going to create some kind of thing that injects a ton of like white noise, so you can't make sense of like what I'm actually talking about, and like well, all the white noise I inject, and it's just like going to help mask my private, you know, mask my my privacy concerns. At the time, I didn't really know what differential privacy was, but I kind of just like inadvertently made a joke about differential privacy and injecting noise in the data. And Ali's like, you know, that's a really interesting idea. Like maybe not like trying to like throw off the people in Alexa, but what about like, you know, how do we make these kind of tools that, that, that do this kind of thing? And then we just, from there, we just kind of spent nights and weekends kind of riffing on this idea. We backed into basically privacy being an engineering problem where if you enabled engineers to make safe versions of data at the source of where the data gets created before the data gets put into a data silo or a database or a data warehouse and it gets replicated a million times because it's being shared everywhere. What if we could do that? So then anyone processing sensitive information could always fork off a copy of the safe version of the data. And so then when you go into that like data replication problem because you're sharing data with partners or inside your org, it's already clean. That was Gretel, that we kind of just described Gretel before we even launched it. And then we were like, well, should we just do this? Because no one else is doing this. We were like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> so uh, that's what we did like two years ago. You know, we had all left our, left our various positions and launched Gretel. Well, tell me about the MVP. And you touched on it a little bit, but tell me a little bit more about it. What sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? How long it took you to build? And, and give me a little bit more of the, of the story there. You know, I think MVP is kind of a, a broad term for any startup. But what we wanted to do was demonstrate that it was possible to take what is otherwise a pretty complex operation, such as detecting PII or creating synthetic data, and actually just put it behind a friendly API call. We want to demonstrate that was possible because there's a ton of frameworks out there that can do a bunch of different things like PII detection or data transforms. But usually you have to kind of really dive deep into the SDK and you have to kind of connect it in with what you're building. And it might not be compatible, right? Like some of these tools are written in Python or some of these tools are written in Java. And then if you're working and you're building a Golang stack for whatever reason, and you need to try to wire that stuff in, it becomes a little challenging, right? You have to build a you know, decoupled services and that's fine to do. But we were like, what if we can just make it through these common REST APIs? And so when we built the MVP, you know, what we really kind of created at first was a bunch of Jupyter notebooks 
that uh, made REST API calls. We wrote them in Python. Uh, we demonstrated that, you know, given a data set and then given a couple of API calls, you could, you could build safe versions of data. We built some tools and we just like built them in Docker containers and they were running their own little REST APIs and we can spin it up on our local machine. We push a bunch of data into it and then we can make another API call to get the, the transformed or the synthetic data back out on the other side. And we were able to just kind of went on a roadshow and we talked to a, a ton of different engineers and different companies that we knew. Obviously, we were talking to investors and demonstrating the capability to them. You know, really, it was all about extrapolating this little deployable tool that we that we build that you can run on like your own workstation. Now we we're like, imagine this, but now imagine deployed in, in the cloud and, you know, making it infinitely scalable because you could host it on, you know, any one of different cloud providers. Imagine that developers everywhere can sign up and, and use this thing and drastically increase the productivity of their organizations because now they can create safe data that they can share anywhere. Tell me about some of the decisions and trade-offs you had to make in that MVP. Feature cut, technical debt, I could extract a few of those from some of the things you're saying, but I want to give space to it. So tell me about the, some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to make and how you coped with them. You know, the market that we're in is basically a market we're creating is privacy engineering. And so MVP is all about demonstrability, I think, in that sense. And what we knew would take a lot longer is we built a service that people could sign up for and use was was probably too long of a stretch. So we, we said that's where we kind of decided to build kind of this locally deployable version of Gretel very early on and kind of go on this roadshow and have people just install it on their own workstations because everyone who's working with data already has like, you know, in your downloads folder, you probably have some CSVs you downloaded from like a database dump. And then we said, hey, just use this on your local system. We got that built way faster than, the, than building an actual like hosted MVP that would that would you know allow people to log in and actually like test things. Now the sacrifice there is it takes more time up front to kind of go on the roadshow versus like putting it out there and letting people log in. But when we're kind of trying to create this new market, we have to go out and kind of get people excited as as, as fast as possible. On the converse, I would say if you're in a market that's well established and you're doing like something a new a new take on it or something additive to that market, then I would lean more towards building something that you could unveil and have like tons of people sign up for. Now, with that said, the MVP for us was all about getting that initial funding. Uh, once we once we got that secured, we did then launch a public beta eight months later, um, what we call our beta one. We had like, you know, all the people starting to sign up and starting to use Gretel at that point. But our MVP was really about the roadshow to get the initial funding so we could bootstrap the team and get going. And that I think that's what's important to note. Like your MVP should have an end goal in mind. And that, that's what ours was. Well, then how did you progress the product from there post-funding, um, you know, post that goal? How did you progress the product? And I'm curious how you built your roadmap and figured out, okay, this is the next thing, the next most important thing to address or to build Gretel. Right after we got our funding, I think the most important thing that you could do is really bootstrap your team with the right talent. And that's what we did first. Uh, we were able to kind of leverage our networks and we were able to bootstrap probably four to five folks to come on board and just start building with us. At that point, you know, you have a decision to make 
on how you're going to get people to use the next evolution of the product. And traditionally, you'll have a lot of startups build an MVP, and then you'll start to build the next iteration of that, and then you get it into customers' hands one of different ways, right? One way is you can bring on sales folks to go out and start building relationships with companies and enterprises. And we've all done that before. What was interesting to us was to make it attractable to developers so they could sign up and get started right away. And if you look at like companies like like Stripe or Sentry for error tracking or SNCC for security vulnerabilities or GitHub for collaboration, it's so easy to get started. And we really wanted to, we wanted to provide that experience. And so our roadmap was really focused on how do we take the functionality we built, like the actual capability, and make it as consumable as possible, as easily as possible. And that kind of like shaped our roadmap. Uh, and it still shapes our roadmap today, right? Things like, well, you go to our landing page and like you can just sign in with a GitHub account or a Google account. And then once you're in, we'll have like, here's a couple of API calls you can make to, to see what's all in the realm of possible. And then once you see that, okay, here's some tutorials that you could follow on how to kind of go to the next level and operationalize things. So it was just kind of like progressive disclosure of complexity and using the product, and stealing that phrase from my co-founder, Alex, who says that all the time about how we build features is that you want to get people started really, really fast. And then here's the next thing you do and the next thing you can do. So people can like, build their expertise with your product. And that's how we, that's really how we shape it today. We just, we try to build something that is usable very quickly and we get it out there and then we iterate on it as opposed to, you know, capturing as much feedback as possible and building it in a vacuum and then having like a big unveiling later on. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but I want to give it space here. So how did you go about building your team? And, and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? Yeah, so the way we built the team, we basically wanted to enhance our strengths with people that were arguably better at us than what we think we were good at. And so what I mean by that is, you know, my expertise is more in, I'll call it like service engineering, right? So like building scalable compute, storage, decoupled microservices, delivering complex things through clean interfaces, maintaining our, you know, our code base and our build systems. That's kind of like where, where I live, like call it like general engineering, if you will. And then Alex's strength, you know, he lives in AI machine learning, engineering, uh, research. And we said, we're each going to surround ourselves with people that are one really passionate about what we're doing. Cause they, they could, they could share the, the pain that we used to have in trying to solve this problem. And then two, arguably, are probably better than us at what it is that we think our strengths are. And that's how we continue to do it today is, you know, we try to surround our, ourselves with uh, other team members that just continually make us better as, as you know, practitioners ourselves. And then, of course, that makes the, the company better. We're really fortunate to have a pretty strong network of folks that we've worked with in the past who we were able to kind of bring on as initial cadre and bootstrap the, the company with. And then from there, you know, we were able to kind of build the, the muscle to go out and source new candidates and, and talk to them. Well, let's talk about scalability. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or are you fighting this as you grow and gain traction? 
kind of like a Goldilocks problem, I think. You, you want it to scale to the amount of people you think that are gonna come in and use it. And you don't wanna to spend too much time making it, I'll say infinitely scale upfront because you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna just take too much time to do that. So I'd say we, we moderately sized it so we know we could support we put our finger in the air, we said, you know, in any given day we wanna have probably fifty to hundred users on the system kind of sending moderate workloads through it. We called that the metrics we needed to kind of determine that this was the right uh, fit for the right problem. So like a problem market fit analysis. We built it so basically we could scale it that way with some soft limits on it, where if we knew we really needed to scale it more, then we could do that by, you know, horizontally scaling the different components that we had. At that stage, we were very conscious about our burn and what we were spending every day because we knew every user that was coming in at this point, it was a free beta. And so we needed to kind of mind, mind that. So it's really hard to kind of get that initial metric, but it's good to kind of identify those types of metrics that everyone can agree on upfront because then you can kind of orient your engineering efforts around that versus just saying, well, I want this thing to scale like forever. And you're just going to get caught in this kind of like build trap of trying to figure out like how to do that. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I think what I'm most proud of is like the team and how motivated they are by the product itself. And there's like these always these little things that happen where you're like, oh, wow, we're really building the right thing where like someone posts a news article and the news article might be about some type of privacy challenge. And then someone is like, this is how they could use Gretel to actually solve that problem. And they they have such a deep understanding of what we've built, but also like how it can apply to the real world and all these like things that are happening with, with privacy. I mean, of course I'm proud of like the actual technology we built and the tools that we built, but it's really about like seeing how the team has come together to do this. And especially over the last couple of years, you know, we built the company as a remote team and just to see people like absorb like, everything that we're building and, and like know how to know how to use it. And like everyone on this team can like dive in and help a customer solve something because we have our, our documentation is designed for other developers to use, but we use our own documentation to help each other. And that's, was something really nice to see. And then I think the other thing I'm most proud about is that most of our like customers just come to us. To this day, we don't have a sales team. Now, of course we're, we're building one, but we have big enterprise customers just emailing our hi at gretel.ai email account all the time. Just saying like, hey, we saw what you guys are doing. We saw this video demo, or we heard this this uh, podcast or we saw this this tutorial and like we want to know how to run this that's that's an amazing feeling when when people are coming to you and you're just getting inbounds directly well let's flip the script a little bit so tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it so we had we had two iterations of a beta uh, beta one and beta two that we call them because we're very clever at naming things and the first beta that we released we kind of made some rough assumptions on how people wanted to send us data. What I mean by that is you were able to send us a couple of pieces of data and get like real-time results. 
and the challenge there was it was really good to it was really good to demo like hey like i could show you real time like i could take this json blob you could set it into our api and you got results back right away and people were like this was great like i'm in and they're like now i have a five gigabyte file how do we process that we had to write like a bunch of kind of adapter code to kind of take that and try to stream it through the system and it just it just didn't scale very well and i think the mistake there is we knew what problem we were trying to solve but we didn't really know how people wanted to consume the product to do it and so the way we rectified that we took a step back and we said well in addition to be able to give you that like really fast like taste of privacy engineering through the like, real-time apis you know, we probably should have built a way for folks to run kind of those bigger jobs through the system so that like they could take it to the next level. And so, the, I mean, we, what we did was we just basically just built a second iteration of the APIs that allow you to kind of like push a, a big data set into our workers. And then they would, they would kind of asynchronously process it and then you would get that output back. We solved the same problem, but we approached it a little differently so that customers can actually consume it like a little more, a little more like at scale for themselves. If I had to do things over again, I probably would have fast forwarded that second step, like pretty much where we're at now with the system we have now, which, you know, would have probably saved us a little bit of time. But I also don't know that we would have known we made that mistake if we didn't go through the process we did. So it's kind of like a, you know, catch 22. So, so I think some mistakes like that um, are just kind of necessary. Well, what does the future look like for Gretel, for the product, and for your team? We're actually going to be uh, going to uh, general availability. Anyone will be able to sign up for Gretel, and we have a freemium model, so you'll get some amount of compute for free. And then um, you can there's a consumption model page you go, so we're turning on kind of like the billing apparatus, if you if you will. Um, and then, you know, really at this point, it's all about scaling all the ways to make privacy available to developers. So we kind of have three core workflows now. And what we see envisioning is, is making that a much bigger buffet of capabilities for, for developers. And the reason why we want to do that is there are a bunch of amazing privacy tech capabilities out there now, but each one kind of comes with its own unique API or unique way to deploy. And we want to make all those available through like a single clean API. And, you know, we want to go from, you know, at the, you know, a fourth way to process like images and another way to process like sounds and another one that work on, on video. And then back to even like text data, there's like structured text data from databases. There's unstructured text, like, um, like freeform documents or speech to text. So we want to be able to like consume all types of data to make all types of data safe. And so it's really about expanding that buffet and then um, being able to push simultaneously into all types of industry verticals. We don't really target any specific vertical now. Uh, we have a ton of customers across a bunch of different spaces and we really want to start being able to think about how we can apply some of our capabilities to make um, vertical specific offerings. So, okay, like, yeah, we can process free text, but can we process free text that is, you know, specifically for like medical industry or for the scientific industry? Um, 
or like process like specific financial uh, data as well. So kind of building these adapters to to plug into those different systems. And then the third big thing is how do we kind of push into the developer ecosystem so we become baked into a lot of tools that developers use today. So if you're using uh, certain CI, CD products, like is Gretel just a step you can turn on to touch the data on the way? Um, if using a data warehouse, is there is there a way that you can just turn on Gretel so that if you want to dump that data, it transparently goes through Gretel? Um, those are all the big things that are really going to expand. And really, it's building the team to do all that. We're hiring like crazy um, across all departments um, to take on all those challenges. Well, let's switch to you, John. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, CTO, architect, really any person that you look up to and why. I think I'm really influenced first and foremost by my co-founders. You know, they make me think in different ways uh, because I have such different strengths than I do. And um, just the way I approach problems, I think, is has been strongly shaped by them. Um, in a way, I'd say I look up to them as well um, because uh, they just I don't, motivate me to to want to be better. Um, I think second would be the folks that I that I actually hire and have like working here at Gretel. They're all better than me at something, and I think I. I enjoy that because it, it makes me uh, a better engineer and a better leader. So I know how to like enable them um, to do their jobs. And, you know, I think outside of Gretel, um, we've had the, we've had the, the benefit to talk to a lot of different industry leaders um, that are, you know, directors and VPs at other companies like AWS and, and GitHub and just hearing their stories about how they scale their teams from like five to 400 people is, is incredible. And, you know, they are great mentors and people to learn from about how we try to scale Gretel. And like, believe it or not, I think there's probably people I don't know who influence me because I spend so much time looking through the open source community for really cool products and how they get built. And it's like, they're like faceless heroes because you can learn so many cool design patterns and like ways to build by just like absorbing open source products, which is what motivated us to actually make a lot of our stuff open source. Um, just reading through that and seeing how they build is, is incredible. And that's been super valuable as well. So we talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? I'm going to take a more of a technical answer on this one because we're going through this right now. I would have built more of the business model mechanics into the into the product. So like I, I mentioned earlier, we're getting ready to go GA. And uh, it, the way it works is that you use Gretel and then you accumulate usage and then it calculates um, how much usage you have. And uh, that converts into you know getting billed based off your usage. Um, and the other thing that we do is instrument the product um, to be able to do kind of like, you know, like retrospective kind of like billing analysis or just usage analysis. And I would have probably spent more time digging in on what we thought that business model was going to be sooner and at least built like the right hooks or the right data accumulation mechanisms for that earlier on because 
what happens is you end up kind of retrofitting some of these things into the code base and it, it just becomes challenging that way. And it's so easy to build an MVP or build a product that just shows like the core features off. And then you have to remember that like on top of building the product, you are building a business and like the engineering team has to, you know, operationalize those, those business mechanics. And we, we just spent a lot of time kind of like rebuilding that um, and, and hooking that back in. And that's one thing I would have thought about differently. I, I get, it's easy to get so excited and just build the cool features and demonstrate how everything works. And then um, you realize sometimes you just, you need to kind of think about a house is actually going to be consumed from a business standpoint earlier. And can you kind of put some of those things in up front so you're, you're not retrofitting so much at the end? Well, last question, John. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? My advice would be, you know, they're so passionate about what they want to do. They probably have, they probably have a notion of how they want to package it, how they want to sell it. Um, my advice is to stay the stay the course on what they intend to build. And the reason why I say that is it's 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 always really easy to kind of get your first amount of revenue. And so always it's a little easier to get your second and then your third, but it's also easy to kind of digress off of what you want to do because you wanna you wanna accelerate so fast, right? I think a lot of companies will chase will chase success the easiest way possible versus staying the course that you want to be on and that you you always wanted to be on even though it feels a little harder up front and i use revenue as an example because uh, it, it it's easy to kind of get a beta tester and then they're like cool now i want you to build this and you're like okay i'll build that next and then now i want you to build this and then you start to feel like well they're kind of asking me to build stuff that i don't think belongs in the product because it's very bespoke to them and then next thing you know, you kind of get in this trap where you maybe have, you know, four or five customers that are kind of driving your entire roadmap. And then next thing you know, like you've kind of lost, you lost a little bit of control on the kind of like the product you wanted to build because it's now applicable to a much smaller audience, but it enables you to kind of get success by way of revenue sooner and just hold, hold, hold steady on, on what you want. Like no one knows the product better than you do. And no one knows how it should be employed better than you do. So um, surround yourself with people who believe in that as well, because they're going to amplify your ability to hold that course versus surrounding yourself with the people who might actually take you off course. That's great advice. Well, John, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Gretel. Yeah, for sure. Uh, super happy to be here. And um, thanks so much. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.